Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, it's, it's such an interesting time right now. Um, we're, we're, on the one hand, still dealing with the remnants of the pandemic. Hopefully, it's the remnants. Who knows? It changes every day. And um, we're, we're dealing with a crime wave in the city that um, we may think is a New Orleans-based phenomenon, but it's not. It's national. But, you know, we tend to think about what's happening in our backyard. And so we're very confronted with um, a difficult situation that's happening elsewhere. I don't know exactly how to characterize what's happening here as opposed to what's happening in other places, but it's not easy. Michael Williamson is the head of the United Way. And the United Way is an organization that has systematically for, God, I don't know how many decades. How many decades, Michael? We're almost 100 years old, Jean. Oh, my Lord. So... All those years, United Way has really tried to be of assistance in moving communities forward in one way or another, and particularly trying to bring together um, the different interests that uh, compose a city, you might say. So I, I really wanted to hear from him. I know he's concerned about crime also, and I don't usually, as those of you who listen to my show on a regular basis know, I don't deal with crime a lot because I really think it's more about education, jobs, a, a, a perception of future, a perception of talent and a potential that, that rules what happens to a young person anywhere ever and in New Orleans right now. So um, having said that, I, let's use that as a jumping off point. I'm sure that you in United Way have been thinking about this too. Certainly, we've we've obviously we read the headlines and the op-ed pieces and see all the editorial, you know, discussions around the issue of crime. <clears throat> Clearly, it's something United Way cares about because it's rooted in poverty, and poverty is you know a primary issue that we focus on as a as an organization. Um, but to your point, you started out in your opening, Gene. Um, what we're really built for is to bring together more collaborative systems level approach and thinkers to come up with a more holistic way to address problems that are deeply rooted in in community and so crime is one of those and uh and it requires a, a lot of education um kind of changing mindsets etc but i will say that um i believe there are a lot of folks out there rooting for new orleans success um but we got to develop a plan to actually realize that that's an interesting statement because I think one of the uh, frustrations that those of us who work in the nonprofit sector have um, is that we don't um, necessarily have uh, as much capital and resources in the corporate and philanthropic and public sectors in this city as a lot of other cities that have a much more robust economy. Um, so I, I don't know what the solution to that is. We, we, we go begging to the big national uh, organizations and um, they, they actually really did try to help after the storm. I felt like there was a point more recently they were saying, okay, well, we've tried, we've done our thing in New Orleans and there's a lot of other places now that are in trouble too. So are we moving on? What are we doing? But I, I think actually more recently I'm hearing that they are still tuned into us. Can you give me a little bit better a sense of that? I mean, sure. Yeah, I think there are a lot of, you know, national level funders that um, continue to invest in New Orleans and Southeast Louisiana. Once again, you're know, rooting for our success and seeing 
we've often described ourselves as a, as a petri dish to really study, you know, um, issues. Um, so yes, that's still very much alive. I think one of the things that we have to be mindful of, Gene, is that before we ask for more, let's be clear on what we have and how we're using what we have the same way you would do in budgeting in a household. You know, first you got to figure out what you're working with currently and how you're using those resources um, and then have a clear plan on what you need as far as more and how you would use those resources to advance what would be an overall you know, plan or objective. And I think that is a question that, um, that funders are going to be asking us now. Uh, I work with a group called the Creative Response Network. I don't know if you've heard about them, uh, but that started with just a kind of um, biweekly call uh, with uh, arts organizations uh, trying to uh, come together with a little bit more of a joint effort to help artists during the pandemic. Well, now we've been, um, we have a kind of leadership group that's looking into, okay, what do we do now? We, how do we go from here? And um, I proposed, and I, I, don't, I don't think anybody wasn't on the same trail, that what we really need to do is figure out um, how do we pool our efforts for funding long-term instead of us, each one of us competing against the other in silos, um, how do we work collaboratively? And again, this is what I'm hearing from you as a priority for United Way. One thing I would like you to do also, United Way is, is kind of, it's viewed as um, old school, uh, been there, uh, establishment, all those words. But I, I'm getting a little bit of a different sense from you. So tell me a little bit about you, your vision, how you came to be doing this, and 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 how do you see United Way going forward? Well, we we often say thanks, Gene, uh, for the question because it's one that we we try to speak openly about now as an organization that's been in the community almost a hundred years now. Um, we often say you're not we're not your grandfather's or your grandmother's. Um, United Way. We've we've changed dramatically. We moved from a pass-through funder, like one campaign for all, um, although we still are a one-stop shop for folks who are looking to give to a variety of um, organizations that they care about, but we've moved well beyond that, and we've moved into more systems-level change approaches, focusing on more collaborative approaches to tackle issues, once again, that are rooted in poverty. And that's things like um, recidivism. You know, if we want to address crime in our communities, let's stop the revolving door. There are proven strategies that we're currently deploying in some of our communities that work. And that's a way to address crime at some level, but that's a systems level approach. You know, increasing access to early care and education and making sure that it's affordable. That's a long-term strategy. It requires a systems level approach. But that's the kind of work we're involved in now. So we still fund organizations. We raise money to provide grants to organizations that are aligned with our values and the work we're doing. But we're also involved, involved in investing in real robust tabletop discussions among thought leaders to tackle more systemic issues. And I would say, you know, crime is one of those ones that obviously is really peaking in people's minds. There's far more discussions today than there have been at least in, in recent past. And once again, my belief is that there are a lot of organizations out there that are working on the fringes of the issue. However, we're not aligned with our resources. I'm sure many are under-resourced, 
We don't have the same objectives. We don't measure success the same way. We don't have the same outcomes prescribed for all of us to aspire to. It's just a hard to build any sustainable momentum that could lead to real change. And so our vision, my vision is that we have an equitable New Orleans where every individual has access to a great education, great healthcare and economic opportunity, firmly believing that uh, access to economic opportunity is the great equalizer. Once a person can earn, you have a job that pays a living wage, they can take care of their families and save for a brighter future, then many of these issues begin to go away. But it starts actually the moment a child is conceived and goes through all the way through adulthood and all those systems have to be working together. Where do you come from? Um, I'm originally from South Carolina, a um, little okay. town called Aiken. Aiken, oh gosh, why do I know something about Aiken? It's usually somebody who's like six degrees of Aiken. Well, I, I, I'm going to check with my husband because I think maybe um, he had somebody who worked with him when he was a child who was from Aiken. Um, how did you come to this uh, position in your mind about the importance of addressing poverty, living wage? Living wage is an expression you hear more from, you know, the SIEU union than you do from, you know, people who are in more corporate uh, uh, positions in life. So tell me about you know, uh, how you shaped your um, concerns and your strategy and vision? Well, I, um, Gene, I was born in a middle-class family in South Carolina. Um, I was the first person in my immediate family to go to, to, go to college. Um, I had uncles, et cetera, that were college educated, but um, I was the only person in my immediate family that completed college and, um, and certainly you know, saw the value in, in that and the importance of having an education and what it meant to you know, my ability to have long-term success. Um, I found my way into United Way as a volunteer, um, found it to be both professionally challenging, but also uh, rewarding at the same time. Um, that led me to lead the local United Way in my community, um, where we were doing some really cool cutting edge things when it comes to community impact, as we call it today. Um, I, I got recruited to go join the, the team at United Way of America. Um, which uh, had a lot of responsibilities around uh, national disaster response, which led me to connect with my colleagues in the Gulf after Katrina. Uh, my good friend, colleague, mentor, Gary Ostrowski, who is my predecessor, invited me to join the team here to be his successor. I've been here 13 years, but to go kind of the heart of your, your question, my vision my belief in the role that United Way can play has been shaped by all those experiences. I've been around a minute, so I've seen a lot of things. I've seen things done right. I've things, seen things done wrong. I recognize that we often say around here that United Way organizations have to move at the speed of need. Um, we have to be able to address issues and do so in a systemic way. And so, and I believe there's really, in, 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 when it's all said and done, Gene, I just think United Way by virtue of our name and just our DNA, are appropriately suited to host, convene, facilitate um, dialogues around pressing issues that the community is struggling to solve. Um, and we're kind of like Switzerland, you know, we're we're in the middle. We're we we you know we respect both views. We're looking for data proven, you know, strategies, things we know will get results, evidence based practices and trying to get everybody on the same page and aligned because that allows two things. It allows for a shared vision, shared outcomes, but also sharing of resources, you know, which 
and sometimes it's difficult, especially right now when when resources are hard to come by, just given the massive amount of competition that's out there. So um, I, 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 I'm thinking a lot of things while you were talking, but um, one thing that I've two things, New Orleans, uh, I think it was I, I quote this a lot. Um, uh, uh, Art Neville, who was part of the Neville Brothers um, band. <laughs> Uh, is the one who's credited with uh, who coining the phrase the big easy. My husband, on the other hand, calls this the little difficult. Because uh, again, it's, it's primarily an issue of resources. We just haven't had the resources. But also we have a fairly complicated demographic history. Let's, mm -hmm. let's just acknowledge French, Spanish, African-American. Um, and then waves of Irish, Italian, and other. And not that this is not, uh, and, and I think German would be the one other I would add to that kind of, the, that's the characteristic co collection of the demographic backgrounds here. But, but also there was a tendency for all of those groups to kind of really stick to themselves, which is not also uncharacteristic in other places, but a maybe just a little bit more so here, and I, I, I couldn't explain why. Um, there has been too much of a tendency in this city for people to operate in silos. So I think what you are saying you are trying to do is critically important. And now more than ever, because we're at a change point in the state with petrochemical industry uh, challenged enormously by the realities of, of climate change, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, uh, and having to really not just talk about renewable energy, which is what I heard from the Economic Development Council, whatever that is at the state level, because I didn't really hear much from them until they announced all of a sudden, oh, this is what we're committed to. And I'm saying, oh, okay, well, what about the rest of the economy? What are people gonna do for jobs as petrochemical goes down? And, and I, of course, I'm committed to the idea that the creative industries is one of the critical growth industries for us in the state, because we have so darn much talent and um, we have been um, the, the uh, seed of so many art forms, cultural forms historically. So it's crazy for us not to do more with this. But um, I don't know, we shoot ourselves in the feet a lot. And um, I think I, I sometimes I characterize New Orleans as being kind of in a way an adolescent city. We're very emotional about our city. We care about it, we love it. It, it, it tends to be a little bit of an abusive mate. And so we have to really work to get over the psychological obstacles in the city. So I think you've, you're, you're doing something that is critically important, but at a, at a critically important moment when we have this confluence of, you know, a, a, a spike, a huge spike in crime at the same time that we have a, a diminution of one of our key economic sectors and, um, and, and at the same time, uh, I, I would say kind of a combination of wanting to work more together and a little bit more collaborative energy. And certainly those arts organizations that all came together during the pandemic were demonstrating the willingness to be collaborative. And I'm sure you have been um, also seeing that, otherwise you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. But how are we actually going to, I think that there's also one other factor. There's a, there's a phenomenal, drop off in trust of government in our country. Not, it's not just the folks who don't want to get vaccinated, which is, is really just an unfortunate resistance symbol that they chose for a variety of reasons. Because 
I wish that it had been something else that didn't cost people lives. But, um, and, and not just because of this side of the, the aisle or that side of the aisle, but just um, a, a kind of a, a, a realization that the government has really, and I've always been a pro-government person, has not really been cutting it. They're just not cutting it. And so um, there's now, I think, a kind of cynicism amongst both our younger people and our older people. That seems to me the real mountain to climb. So t tell me about how you are perceiving that, because I know you've been thinking about that and dealing with that too. Oh, certainly. Just overall trust in institutions, even for an organization like United Way that's been around almost 100 years. You know, a lot of, a lot of young people um, don't really even know who we are or what we do, um, because it was something that their grandparents or their great-grandparents or even their parents were, <laughs> were fond of or involved in for lots of good reasons. And so we're obviously having to engage differently in what we see, especially among young emerging professionals, folks that are you know, kind of early in their careers and making their way through the world is, you know, they're looking for ways to get engaged more as volunteers and advocates around things that they care about. And that's that's certainly something we have to we have to be effective at to help shape an understanding, not just of United Way, but more importantly, the issue that we're trying to tackle, which broadly is poverty, but the systems that are rooted in it, that are ineffective and that are failing. And clearly there's a role for, for government to play in. We have to build a trust government to a, to a certain extent, but you also have you know, private philanthropy in the nonprofit sector like us that are out there. We have an oar, you know, we have an oar in the water and we're rowing. The question is, are we all rowing in the same direction? And once again, I challenge us to currently look at the assets and resources we have that are actually being deployed in some way against the issue of crime really map that out and understand it. So we know what we're currently working with and then figure out what is it gonna to take to start to see real change and you know, get out of this mindset that you know, we, have to, we have to make a choice like either or when why can't it be both and? And I think you, know, the, you mentioned both sides of the aisle, but you know, people normally walk down the middle um, if you go to a church or even our legislators and you see people navigating around, most folks kind of transgress through the middle, the middle aisle. That's where people can meet. That's where we can talk about a shared vision, shared outcomes. You begin to talk about how we work together more than we talk about, you know, how we work apart or how different we are. And that's the, I mean, the beauty of people in the human race. I mean, I, when you were talking about, you know, the various you know, nationalities, et cetera, that have shaped, you know, New Orleans in the different languages and cultures and maybe dialects, et cetera. I think about the universal language, you know, it's, you know, that it's love and how do we take care of one another? And I don't think, I would dare say the majority of folks in this great city all want the same thing. They just don't know how to get there together. And that's something we have to help figure out. I think that's a really important statement because um, I think there's a lot of people in the city who would love to be able to do better for themselves, their family, their community, the city, and they don't know how. Um, can you specify for me a couple anecdotal examples of 
um, programs that you are working on that um, are expressions of this vision, this commitment. Um, we've been talking in generalities, and I just wanted to kind of sure. take a deeper dive into some specifics. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, probably the best example I can give is the work we're doing around financial capability building. Um, big language words. You say philanthropic. Financial capability building. Financial. So those are kind of big words around helping individuals kind of you know, earn a good living and manage those resources, you know, those basic skills that often aren't taught in the household and in schools, but, you know, basic budgeting and how do families learn how to save and acquire assets and that, that, that can help, you know, you know, generations to follow. And so our prosperity center, most notably the, the center in New Orleans, the J. Wayne Leonard Prosperity Center named after former Intergy CEO Wayne Leonard, um, focuses on about 10 different financial capability building services. Um, and a big part of that is our asset building work. So folks have to go through pretty extensive financial education all the way uh, on a pathway to purchase an asset like a home, a car, pursue higher education, or, or a, um, start a small business. And I use that as an example because, Gene, it is a very, it's evidence-based best practice. Um, it is very holistic in its approach and our track record, our track record speaks for itself. And so, and it's really about kind of tackling the failed systems around helping families learn how to build financial capability from when they're within their uh, families, within their households is probably a, a great example. And we just posted our four-year results um, for the center. So in four years, we've helped um, better than 100 households acquire about 13.3 million in assets. Um, I yeah, think that, three point. about 13.3 million in asset purchases over a four-year period. Wow. The majority of the households that we work with are households of color, um, which means these would be first-time home buyers, households of color that are acquiring assets. It speaks to the racial wealth gap and how do you close it. Um, but that, that is probably one of the prime examples, but we've done a lot of work in the early care and education space, prisoner reentry, as I, I mentioned before, we have some great examples and track records to show when you work on systems and you bring partners and stakeholders together, you can start to see change at scale that's recognizable and noticeable. You know, I couldn't, um, I, 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 I couldn't be more appreciative of, of that, of that tack that you're taking. And um, I, I think that uh, it really addresses again, the heart of, of the issue that we have here, which is uh, not just a lack of resources, um, kind of community wide and for various sectors, um, including small business development, including nonprofits, but you're taking it right down to the family level and, and that's where it all starts. Yeah. And um, I, I have a, a course that uh, we have provided uh, called Creative Futures that is aimed at helping um, creative uh, students understand their job potential. And I had to fill in for the teachers a couple of times in the classroom and I was astounded at A, the level of creativity, but at B, the um, really traumatic issues in the home. Exactly. Student after uh, student. Yeah, Gene, I think you've touched on something I think that we just don't talk about enough is that uh, a 17 year old doesn't show up one day and decide, you know, 
I'm going to do something bad. And horrible things happen, and certainly we need law and order, and we need justice, um, especially for victims. But we also have to understand how we got to that point. And the stark reality is that trauma, consistent over time, starting from a, a child's early years, dramatically affect brain development, which affects your ability to reason and think as we would think, like logically right versus wrong, or what we would, you know, how we would handle a particular situation. You know, that's that has changed. That the the individual's brain has been formed based on just over and over repeated traumatic experiences. I think we need to do more education around ACEs, as adverse childhood experiences, and what that does to young children as they become, uh, as they turn into um, adults. Because I'm not the expert in the criminal justice field, and I would defer to those folks to really talk data. But my guess and my educated opinion is that majority of the crimes that takes place, take place, especially violent crimes, the individual, the perpetrator, is have sustained trauma over a period of time. It doesn't necessarily excuse the act, but until we address the, the root causes, then we're going to continue to see those challenges. And I think this is a wonderful opportunity for across that continuum, from early care to adulthood, and the public and the private sector working together, police and government agencies and nonprofit and faith-based institutions and private philanthropy and corporations in our community all committed um, to working together. I honestly believe, and I'm always glass half full, so I will say, I'm gonna say that now, but I actually think we could see the kind of changes that people really want for a city that we all love. I um, hope you're right. <laughs> um, and I, and I, um, and I, I totally agree with you about <laughs> the trauma. Uh, if, if, if you pay attention to uh, particularly these terrorist events where somebody shoots up the whole crowd and so on, um, it seems like almost every time you drill down at all into that person's background, you find that family trauma. And that family trauma is also a product of financial issues, because I think what really drives anger and pain um, and um, negative behavior uh, too often is um, the deficit of financial resources. And again, I, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sociologist, but just from my own um, you know, experience over the years of being around for a few. It's definitely a variable. It's definitely definitely a factor. There are a variety of others. Once again, it's not an either or. We have to recognize them all and then yield to people who have the expertise to work in a lane. You know, a lot of folks are in their own lanes working on particular parts of the issue. And that's fine. You know, we should empower folks to do that and do that in a way that works as a part of a bigger system. And oftentimes what I see among the nonprofit sector is, you know this, because you can do a lot with a little, you're passionate, you're committed. I mean, you're gonna show up and be invested. You just need a seat at the table and you need a voice. And I think, you know, from the creative arts standpoint in the creative economy, there's a place for that. And there's a place for that at the table to ensure that we're not ignoring something that's very much a fabric of, you know, what we know and love about the culture of New Orleans and Southeast Louisiana and Louisiana. 
It's a huge resource and opportunity area that has never been given um, adequate consideration without a doubt. And um, I, I truly hope that uh, that's gonna change uh, for a variety of reasons, including what you're talking about. Um, can I ask you one more on the specifics of how you are seeing right now um, a, a possible direction that United Way is going to go in in terms of addressing uh, crime. I, I'm hearing again, you know, the, the working together and uh, addressing financial um, capacity and um, real, uh, working with young people and so on and so on. But um, give me just an example of a couple of programs that you, that you uh, see on the horizon. Well, um, let me start by saying um, and we're, we're obviously talking to key stakeholders in the community, folks that have come out publicly and, and talked about the issue to get a sense of the willingness to be able to work together. Um, you know, we won't rush into anything. We know there are a lot, a lot of great programs out there. There's some that are very well known, like Melissa Sawyer and Youth Empowerment Project. There's Sonny Lee over at Son of a Saint. Our friends Keith Lederman at Kingsley House provides amazing services from you know, the children through their childcare um, centers, and the list goes on. And there are things that United Way can contribute as well. I think our infrastructure and ability to support the collaborative table setting and the facilitating those discussions ongoing, there's a place for our financial capability building work to, to, to be present and be leveraged. More broadly, the work we've been doing around increasing access to affordable childcare I think is something of paramount importance. It both has a long-term effect, but the immediate effect is families can go to work because they have access to childcare, um, which is, you know, we talk about the great resignation, you know, women are leaving the workforce because they can't find childcare. And you're, you're weighing and you're balancing, do I, it's not affordable, but if I had to pay for it, and then is it worth risking my safety if I'm concerned about, you know, COVID, Etc. Still a lot of concerns out there about that. And so once again, it is a entire systems level approach There's a place for our prisoner entry work that's working a model that we're doing and others are deploying in certain communities around our region and the state. There's a lot of great work being done and it just has to be working together. And what we're trying to determine at United Way is how can we help facilitate that? And we also have to realize this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So solving, solving issues of crime, which are symptomatic, you know, take a while. Um, but I think if we work together, I do think we could see recognizable and noticeable change. I can't resist, um, as we kind of close out, uh, two recommendations. One, uh, you probably have no idea how on the brink and desperate many um, nonprofits are. And um, partly, again, that's a, a, a part of the reason for that is that there are too many <clears throat> who are competing um, in the same arena. Um, uh, uh, so this is, this is something I really worry about because I, I talk to a lot of nonprofits on a daily basis, uh, cultural organizations in particular, and, and um, there are just too many who are literally um, looking at the possibility of closing their doors, don't have money to pay staff, don't have money to pay themselves. Um, and, and this is something that we need to really have some kind of barometer of that. We need, a, we need some metrics on that. 
uh, in order for us to truly understand it and take it seriously. So as you look at things that systemically, you have to look at the condition of nonprofits in the city. Secondly, Absolutely. we don't know who they are. One of the problems, I, 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 I pick up the newspaper and I see some organization that is doing something very similar to what I'm doing. And I'm saying, damn, I had no idea. They were out there doing that. I'm doing that too. How can we get together? So I think there's an inventory that needs to be done. That it used to be done uh, when I first came here uh, in the 70s. Um, and I think I mentioned this to you off, off, off uh, line that there was, um, it was one of the Jewish women's organizations and I don't remember which. They, they generated a directory annually of nonprofits. And it was in the newspaper. You could, and it was like you know, fifty pages or so. It was, it was comprehensive. It was thorough. We do not have anything like that today. Not in the arts, and I don't think in many other categories too. Now, again, in your position, your organization, you probably know more about a lot of these organizations than most of us do. We need to know that. We that's that needs to be more shared knowledge. That has to be made available. But I think also. I would guess that you probably don't even know. Um, maybe you know, let's say, I'm going to guess United Way, you know, 60% of the nonprofits in town. Just a wild guess. And then that Happy, 40 Yeah, I, would, I mean, we could guess at the number. A couple of things I would throw out. And once again, this is um, something that can be leveraged through, leveraged through the power of collaboration. But the Greater New Orleans Foundation, our friends over at the Greater New Orleans Foundation and UNO just published a report on the state of nonprofits. So that's a resource to get a get a sense of, of in general how nonprofits are doing. Although I'm aware of that study, but I can tell you right now, I was not interviewed for that. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, and I'm sure it's not 100 percent complete. So it's, it's not it's not comprehensive. It, it's it's important in terms of uh, of messaging about what they were hearing from nonprofits sure. that they did interview, but it's not it's not the inventory. I'd like to be able to pick up a, a publication and see, you know, uh, uh, ten pages of cultural organizations or or educational uh, cultural or education organizations or cultural community organizations, and just know who's out there. So who could I talk to? And and no, then, I'm... as you said, the convening, we're, we're not convening enough. I mean, yeah. we've come together more than ever during the pandemic, but that we're looking, that group, CRN, is actually looking for funding to try to uh, sustain that effort. I'm just telling you. No, I got you. Just well, saying. I think our, our wheelhouse would be the convening and facilitating and supporting a collaborative approach. Um, certainly, we could work to support you know, a more comprehensive study of the, the nonprofit network and how they're faring and et cetera. I will say that, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but uh, via link, um, which operates 211, which is a three different digit number of folks can call for information, resource and referral. They probably have the most comprehensive listing of uh, nonprofit and other services available in our region and then of course statewide. I'd encourage you to look up vialink.org. Um, that can be, you can searchable database. I just barely heard about them recently. Yeah. Yeah. They're an amazing, Lavandra Dives, our partner over there. We provide funding to them to do what they do to maintain their database. But they're a tremendous resource, not just on kind of cataloging who's out there doing what, but they also have increased capacity around data and heat mapping, where the calls are coming, like when people call for help, 
or chat for help because they have chat, text, and obviously people can call from their cell device or their uh, landline. And so they're able to kind of collect that data and map and say, the majority of food insecurity, people looking for food calls are coming from this particular part of our region, our community. And so they're a powerful resource source. But once again, these things have been around for a long time, Gene, until we start leveraging them all together and focus on an issue that we all care about. And we all subscribe to the same metrics of success and outcomes then we're gonna be hard pressed to be able to show real change that's recognizable and noticeable. And I think that's that's what we wanna facilitate because we know they're out there doing great work and their hearts are in the right place. Um, but if we're not working together, then it's, it's like any other, use any sport analogy, a team that doesn't work together doesn't win a championship. I'm going to take that as the closing note. I mean, I, I that's where we started uh, in a way, and um, and and that is um, just tremendously important. And I uh, am appreciative of the fact that you're there and that you all are doing that. And um, uh, please uh, call on um, uh, on on me and our radio show and our newsletter and um, other things that I do uh, anytime to. Um, channel uh, support uh, in one way or another to you. I, I appreciate very much what you're doing. Michael Williamson is the head of United Way. Um, if you have not uh, heard about or checked in lately um, with United Way, now's the time to do it. You need to find out what they're trying to do to bring us all together. I thank you so much for your time. I know it was kind of a longish interview, but I, I really wanted to hear from you. So I'm, I'm glad that you were able to give me the time. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Gene. I really appreciate the opportunity. Lots of luck. Thank you. Thank you. I um, have with me today, Prisca Weems, who is an urban planner, um, architect, uh, and um, somebody I just consider basically savvy about um, the world we try to live in. So, um, and she has been uh, working in New Orleans for a long time, but she's also now uh, doing a lot of work on the road and um, both in this country and in Europe. And so I was just very curious. I thought, let me, let me uh, hear from Prisca as to what's going on um, in the world. Um, how did what she learned here shape her thinking and response to what she's seeing elsewhere? And how does what she is seeing in the way of land development and other developments elsewhere um, uh, how are they informing her differently from when she was here? So I'm just curious, you know, what's going on out there and what are you learning? All right, that's a lot of questions, Jean. I'm going to go to the first one because it's actually one of my favorite things to talk about. Okay. Um, to share with people, which is that how did uh, my experience, you know, being a New Orleanian and working here after Katrina and just years of projects in New Orleans, how did that shape how I interface with communities and other places? And I would say that the most important um, thing that I took away in my response to anything related to climate issues or development is the community piece of that. Um, I was so um, impressed and fascinated with um, the the fight in the New Orleanian spirit to retain um, purchase on land that had belonged to their ancestors 
land that people had built on themselves, the love of that particular piece of land, um, and how much people were willing to fight to be able to stay in that particular location. And what I really came to understand about that is that it's not always the land itself, um, as often as possible, as not, it's the community that forms around that piece of land, and those are the ties that bind us. And so yeah. when I look at uh, large uh, infrastructure projects, when I look at um, conversations that are discussing what it would look like to redesign a, a section of a town, to me, that conversation has to start in the neighborhoods, has to start with the people who are gonna live there. Um, if there isn't an idea of what the fabric of that neighborhood looks like, you have no idea how to design it on a physical level. And that goes equally for infrastructure as it would for housing or a commercial. So um, I am uh, in deep gratitude to being part of the city and, and learning this truly human lesson about what it actually means to, um, to, to stake a claim on a piece of land. Because it's from that that we derive what we're willing to invest in it and what the longevity is. Mm. Well, and, and you've been working in Europe, and I'm going to assume that um, you're experiencing a similar phenomena in terms of people's relationship to place there as we experience here. Is that not true? Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. You know what? I think one of the main differences in the conversations that are being had, let's say, in the UK. Um, so you have um, three and semi independent um, entities that are legal entities, but they're within the same footprint of an island, um, but all with very different ideas about what they want to see happen, different um, cultural standards, um, but it's nevertheless united under one master government. Um, and there, um, there is still the possibility of uh, more wholesale solutions in the sense that um, government has more say about how money gets expended. Um, here in the States, when we have home rule and the state's rights, and um, again, we are many different peoples living in the same nation. So there's uh, a much, to me, a wonderfully diverse conversation that ha is happening um, and a lot of differing opinions. And there isn't the same legal framework to break the gridlock on that. So there, there is not. There is not. Um, not in the way that the funding sources have been set up for all sorts of reasons that are great reasons, you know. Um, but nevertheless, when you look at a company, a country like China, which has a, a top down um, hierarchical decision making structure, they are able to make pretty radical um, programming and shifts and, and infrastructure mm -hmm. investments and things at a very rapid pace because it is all controlled by the federal government. So it's a few people making decisions and not many. So there are the pluses and minuses that come from that, for sure. Interesting. So um, give me a little bit, let's, let's drill down and take a couple anecdotal examples of uh, things that you're working on or that you're aware of and have interfaced with in some way and um, describe them. Uh, because I, I think what you're saying, uh, as I'm hearing it, is that um, as, as as important as our uh, kind of freedom and our commitment to freedom here may be, uh, maybe there's a less free um, side effect in 
um, in having all of these um, different tiers of, of government and, uh, and community involvement and property rights that um, kind of throw up roadblocks. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. And um, a couple of examples. So one project in the States that I've been working on is a project called Receiver Cities. And that is, um, it's primarily looking at the, the East Coast, which is having <clears throat> a similar sea level rise issues, sometimes more intense in some areas. Um, there is the possibility of the, na the need for mass exodus from certain areas of the East Coast. And so the first question that comes up is what are the resources available to those communities? And if you have to do something at speed, at scale, um, who has the capacity to deal with that? And so what's so interesting about the way that the strength and the economic um, might of certain communities ebbs and flows, you know, you have Chicago and you've got um, Detroit and you've got all these cities that we're more familiar with that have had much larger populations because of industrial activity or other reasons and you know now they go down in population but they still have the infrastructure in place ready to go so their ability to expand is um, you know th that investment has been made um, and so it's much simpler um, to be able to find the additional funds needed to ameliorate that infrastructure as necessary and to be able to create um, areas where a community can come in quickly and to build um, partnerships around housing and things for that. Um, one project that we've been looking at is the Rust Belt, the former industrial corridor that, that went between um, uh, Detroit and Buffalo, New York. Um, all of these, you know, so many of those cities, they have uh, water resources from the lakes and other sources, aquifers. Um, they have a reasonably mild climate. Um, they are tempered from the uh, impacts happening to the coasts. Um, some of them are on bedrock. <laughs> um, but they also have these uh, huge reserves of infrastructure that they're not utilizing. And that includes public buildings and other things that could be renovated and got into play pretty quickly. So, um, you know, one of the, the questions that I think we face here in the Gulf Coast is what is our version of that? What is placed safely far back enough that we can make investment for the next 200 years and know that that investment as a, as a community is gonna be safe? Because honestly, um, the number of disasters that is that are hitting the US um, it's it's exponential. I mean, it's it's remarkable. It's it's doubling every year. The number of billion dollar plus, um, you know, major FEMA funded, uh, you know, disasters. Be they flooding, be they fires, be they any any number of things. So there is a limit to the amount of money that the federal government's going to have to expend. And that's to me what's so interesting about the receiver cities model is that um you think with the word receiver is that the word mm -hmm. okay yeah or receptor receiver meaning that um, communities make a decision within themselves that they uh they feel that they would like to welcome more people into their community than for the economic gain of that for diversity um, to be able to attract back larger industries because then they have the manpower to be able to fuel them um so it's a huge opportunity for a community to actually proactively um, compete with other areas to say, we want people with these skill sets 
uh, let's say from the from Louisiana or from the, the Gulf Coast to come into our community. Here's the lateral opportunities. For oh, so so what? I'm sorry, I, I I didn't quite get that. So you're talking about communities that can actually receive people who may have to leave uh, more threatened areas, or who might may choose to because they've taken so many economic knocks that that they can't sustain it anymore for the sanctity of their family. Um, so yeah, so that is one model. Um, the other model that um, is we're working with a lot is the idea that, you know, we, uh, we make a lot of assumptions about our what our tax dollars can and can't do. Um, uh, in truth, it really depends on your country and your community, but anywhere between, let's say 50 to 80% of um, climate adaptation uh, money needs to come from within the communities themselves. The, the overarching government structures are not designed um, to create so much new infrastructure in a short period of time. Um, so that means um, uh, from, let's say, uh, New Orleans as opposed to the US for solving what's happening yeah. here. So yeah. if you're starting out as a city that is has inadequate resources, um, like New Orleans. I mean, we we don't have the capital. We don't have the um, economic uh, business flow that uh, makes it possible to do more um, aggressive um, uh, development. We're we're the we're the places that are really jammed. If if um, uh, we had to carry the full load of the fiscal implications of climate change. Yeah, and so the, there's a couple of pieces of that is what are are we as individuals, what are what are we willing to change in terms of our lifestyle to um, to lessen um, our own internal threats? Um, how much are we willing to tax ourselves? Uh, what kind of relationships can be built with businesses? Um, you know, uh, how what is what is the role of utilities in these major infrastructure works? Uh, how can they be partner to government? As opposed to independent entities who, you know, have different financial metrics, um, all basically all communities have to have difficult conversations, and they have to decide what is sacred to them, what is the amount of money that they're willing to pay to preserve certain elements of their culture and the protection of lives as well, and that is what you have to work back from. In my experience, that is what gives a most effective plan that then has some kind of consensus, because once you have that in place, you can have, people can make good decisions for themselves and their families and their businesses as to whether or not they're willing to take the risks that are, that come along with that plan. And so there will so, be elements that stay and then there will be elements that choose to go. Uh, so to be um, kind of brutally frank about, uh, and, and also reflect my ignorance, um, I tend to feel that in New Orleans, with all of the incredible culture and architecture and landscape and all the good things, um, rationality about planning for our future is not one of our strong suits. No, I mean, it's um, this incredibly unique culture has developed over time, has taken a lot of knocks along the way. It's become in some ways richer for that. And I think that there is a tremendous resilience that gives us a lot of faith that the city can 
it will continue to to survive in various forms and it will it will continue but and, and disasters historically worldwide and in history have spawned um change in um in some ways very positive i mean it has loosened the um uh, commitment we have to things that aren't working and we do come out of it looking at ways to make something work so there is an upside uh, to um, those disasters in a way that again are not necessarily um, reflected in rational planning but just they just knock the hell out of things and there we are having to develop a new strategy but um, again let me go back to either anecdotes from other places or tell me because I know you think about the city a lot Let's bring it down to the resident in, in New Orleans. Let's say you're in Gentilly, which Gentilly got hit pretty hard by Katrina. Um, there's any neighbor, any number of neighborhoods in the city got hit hard where the levees failed because the surge was greater because the construction of the levees was not done at the level it needed to have been done. And it, I don't tend to blame the core as much for this as Congress that cheated them of money they needed to do it right. So that's just my little political stance on that. Um, it's a little different from a lot of other people in the city, but what, um, from what you have been experiencing, if you uh, were in a position to, to kind of develop and encourage policy changes in our thinking here, um, or if you were just simply a resident in a neighborhood like Gentilly or um, Broadmoor, Broadmoor or parts of Mid-City, et cetera, um, what, 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 what would you be thinking about? I mean, let's take this down to the homeowner level. I would be thinking very carefully. And I'll tell you, um, I, to me, one of the biggest threats is not um, the ability of the city to support itself. It's that there are certain elements that have subsidized our ability to remain here as long as we have. And this is, goes for coastal communities in a more general way, and that is the federal insurance system. Um, we're not expecting that that will remain in place in the same way. So a lot of these decisions will be made on economic grounds with or without us and families are going to be faced and in Louisiana they already have been faced with some very difficult decisions um, and it fundamentally comes down to do you um, do you move <laughs> off of a piece of land that's highly threatened or do you find a way to construct something that is sufficiently resilient that it gives you confidence that it's a good investment and you can have stability of life there and community can exist stop right there what would that look like mm. Is, is there such a thing? Can we, in your opinion, knowing what you know about architecture, infrastructure planning, et cetera, and, and what, what we're expecting? I mean, the headline in the paper, um, just, uh, let's see, this was last week, Thursday, says two feet by 2050, maybe four feet by 2100. I mean, can we build? to live here, can we? Absolutely, a comprehensive plan can go into place to allow people to exist here another 100, 150 years, but it won't look like it looks like now, right? So oh, there are areas that are natural floodplains, there are areas that are protected, but they're protected to a 100-year storm level through the new levee system. Um, these are not um, sufficient to, um, encourage significant new infrastructure or housing investment. 
in my opinion. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think of the future of this area in a much larger timeline. And it's more a question of how over time do we evolve as a community with the land, the changes that are going to be happening in the land. So there are, but it's not going to be um, traditional residential neighborhoods with traditional commercial. It's maybe returning some of the land to agrarian use. It's maybe returning some of the lands who are, are going to become waterlogged to other kinds, to shrimp farming and other uses like that. It may be that we go back to a more pastoral form of Southern Louisiana and that we move more of the actual residential further inland. It doesn't mean that we lose connection to the land. It's almost in a way returning to a more natural form of the land. Without okay, a but that's not gonna be the city of New Orleans anymore. That's gonna be the country of New Orleans. <laughs> it's gonna be, um, it's gonna be the coastal representation of the part of our culture that um, is imbued within the spirit of New Orleanians. So does the physical land that represents New Orleans, is that gonna exist in the same form in 200 years? I doubt very much that that is feasible. Um, can the culture be encapsulated in a way that it is hopefully not um, you know, uh, hardened and tried to be like Disney style, tried to be controlled and, and um, protected, but rather continues to evolve as it has done over so many different um, changes in the, the format of the city and the types of population that come there. Yeah, I think it's going to continue to evolve. Key important parts of the culture will continue to come down. Um, but there's, you know, that's to me, there's a, there is, there is loss, but there's also a possibility. We have a lot of inequities in our city. Um, there are opportunities to reform communities in ways that actually address some of the structural inequality that we have. And to me, the opportunity to, to look at what resettlement could look like um, for our community opens up a lot of, of, of different options for us. And, and to your question about international marketplaces, so many communities have been trying to do this phased adaptation. You know, they get saltwater intrusion, they have to change the kind of farming, they, and they go to, you know, some kind of fish farming or whatever. That all of those give you periods of time um, but eventually the water comes up through the land and another solution has to be found. So, you know, a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of nomadic activity. And even in the early days of the city, during the flood season, a lot, of, almost the whole city had to leave and they've come back again. You know, we may need to return. Yeah. To and we've seen that, we've seen that even in uh, drier areas where we've seen uh, historically where communities just evaporated from the landscape at some point or another. Well, I, I'm out of time for the moment, but I, I do want to continue this conversation because honestly, I still don't have a picture. I, I can't, I'm craving for a picture of our city that allows us to remain as a city. And I, I'm not there yet. So, so I'll, give you, I'll give you two quick things. One of them. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm literally at the, at the edge of the show. It has to be regional. It has to be a regional solution. Louisiana can't fix this by themselves. Thank you. Um, Preska Weems um, obviously knows what she's talking about and um, we're gonna check back in with her as she continues her sojourns through uh, the infrastructure of the world and um, look for um, all kinds of new insights as she moves around. So you're gonna call us in 
on another few months and tell us something new that um, is going to give us some sense of um, how do we go? I mean, maybe I just have to move up to my attic. I don't know. <laughs> this is Jean Nathan. This has been Crosstown Conversations. Thank you so much, Friska. And thank you, everybody. Crosstown Conversations, Jean Nathan on WBLK, what everybody's talking about. And we'll talk next week uh, some more and maybe have some other ideas too. Bye-bye.